Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. A lot of it is over by the time that officer gets there. We outline a, a case in the book, which was really fascinating to us. We interviewed a school principal. It was not a heavy-handed response necessarily that prevented the shooting. It was an existing relationship between the school principal and the student that enabled him to sort of say, you're not going to do this today. I know who you really are and you're not going to do this today. And that helped prevent what could have been an awful tragedy uh, at that particular school. Izzy Azagwi was a decorated squad commander in Israeli Defense Forces. He is the only soldier in the world who lost an arm in combat and returned to the battlefield. I'm really interested to talk to you about this whole situation. Now, you're an American, right? Mm-hmm. And you were living where when you were 18, 17, 18, going to high school and all? I grew up in, in Miami. For your bar mitzvah, you went to Israel, correct? That's correct. I went to Israel for my bar mitzvah. It was during the uh, the second intifada. And so when you made that trip, you went with, was it just you and your parents? Uh, and my sister, yeah. It was a small family trip. Okay. When you were there, you met some Israeli soldiers, Correct. Yeah, they're always out and about uh, traveling home from from base. It's a very small country, so you see them everywhere. You met and talked to some of these guys. Tell me about that and what impact it had on you. Uh, the impact that I had meeting soldiers didn't happen when I was, was 13. It actually happened when I was 18. It was the second time that I had gone, had gone back. Um, what impacted me most as a 13-year-old in Israel was having narrowly avoided the infamous Sabaro bombing. There was a pizzeria uh, that was blown up when I was there, uh, and we had just passed that intersection uh, shortly beforehand. So uh, it there was were my like first. Fifteen people killed, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Fifteen, uh, somewhere around fifteen people killed, many more wounded, and it was kind of just looping on the news. Uh, and I was sitting, sitting huddled with my family in the hotel room. Uh, watching footage of that. Uh, and that was really the first time that it dawned on me that I uh, would maybe want to participate in not allowing that to happen again in the future. Even at 13, you thought about that? Looking back, that was like the first kernel um, that, that uh, led to me volunteering for the IDF. But yeah, it was when I was 18 and I, I got to like actually meet soldiers who were my age, essentially my peers, who were doing something very different than I was at that age that really pushed me to actually follow through. Yeah. And how long after that second trip was it before you actually joined the military? It was less than a year. That's really an unusual thing. You're an American, you're living in Miami, and you go to Israel and join the armed forces over there. That's a big step. It's unusual. Um, I'm a bit of a nerd. 
Uh, I grew up playing video games. I don't like not showering and spending days on end in the dirt without proper food. But um, the the idea of protecting the Jewish people was a compelling enough reason to push against who I am um, and take that leap. What'd your parents think about that? Uh, it's interesting because uh, cause their reaction to my original joining of the military was, I think, more the stereotype, which is that my father was worried, but very proud. I think his, his pride overtook any fear of something happening. And my mother uh, just cried. She, she cried endlessly uh, leading up to, to that first time she watched me leave on the bus. Um, and that changed uh, quite dramatically later on, but we can get to that uh, juxtaposition later. We can hold off. And so how long had you been in when you sustained your injury? The very day that I had finished training, um, which was about nine and a half months into my service, that very day we were sent home on our final weekend leave before we were going to be activated as combat soldiers. And it was that weekend that war broke out on the border of Gaza and my unit was sent there. So the first thing that I saw out of training uh, was that operation. This is January 8th, 2009. So this is your first day out of training. Yep. Thrown right into it. This was a really big mortar shell that landed near you, and you lost not just an arm, but your dominant arm, correct? Yep. 120 millimeter mortar landed less than a foot away from me. Uh, it has, I believe, a 30 meter kill zone, and there was more than one of them that landed within that zone. We found helmets that were split in half. Uh, three, three fellow soldiers were wounded alongside me, and miraculously, none of us uh, were, were killed in action. Um, but yeah, lost my, my dominant arm on the spot. Obviously, this had to be a excruciatingly painful, shocking, horrible thing, but you said the thing that worried you most was what your mother's reaction was going to be. Uh, have, have you met any Jewish mothers over the years? Yes, I have. So yeah, they, they have a tendency to put the, the fear of God in you, even when you're going through something like this. Yeah. I, was, I was more afraid of her reaction and, and how she was going to find out than what I was going through. Uh, and that actually compelled me uh, when we landed at the, at the hospital, the helicopter landed at the hospital and I saw TV crews trying to capture footage for the news. And I was so scared that she would see me that way. Uh, that I actually like bent down and grabbed a blanket that was resting by my feet. I used it to cover my face. And uh, she did see me on TV, but she didn't know it was me. And that's the only reason that we're able to do this interview today, because she would have killed me. Yeah, she would have finished the job? Yep. I, 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 I'm pretty confident that that's the case. So how did she find out? I'm sure you at some point had to tell her. And how did you tell her? And what was her reaction? Uh... She, the way she found out was, was just as dramatic, unfortunately. Um, she got a knock on the door, and there were three officers standing outside. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, here in the U.S., when that happens, it usually means that your, your, your son or daughter has already perished. And that was her initial thought. Um, and to make matters worse, she barely spoke Hebrew, and they didn't speak any English. And they showed her a piece of paper, and on the paper... Uh, the only words in English were were wounded. 
or critically wounded, and she just fell apart. And fortunately, one of the officers who was beside my stretcher when I was being rolled into the hospital was able to connect us over the phone. So I spoke to my mother even before I went into surgery. While I was bleeding out, I already had a battlefield amputation. Uh, I was able to talk to her. And uh, even more than that, I was able to calm her down. I told her to listen to my voice. I asked her if she could hear that I was actually okay. And uh, I asked her if she could be strong for me. And uh, she calmed down immediately. And ever since, uh, I mean, I mentioned that there was a, a drastic change in my parents' reaction when I decided to go back. And, and that's what I mean, is I've never seen her cry about it again. Um, she, she seems to have become stronger through what happened. And my father's the one who is constantly trying to convince me, like, why do you have to go back? You did enough. Um, he's the one who seems to have taken on the role of, of being more afraid. You said there was a battlefield amputation? Yeah. It wasn't done by the, the medics. It actually was done by the munition itself. So they just controlled the bleeding, everything that they could at the time. And how long was it before they got you into surgery? There was so much blood that the first tourniquet that they put on slipped off, um, which is, that was probably the most painful part of the whole experience. Tourniquets are, are painful even in training. You have to train on how to put them on. And even then the pressure is tremendous. But when you have an actual amputation and they're tightening on that wound and then it slips off, um, that was probably the, the, the most brutal element involved. Um, so it took two of those and a lot of lying. I lied to every medic that I, I came across every time they changed over hands. I kept telling them that uh, I didn't get morphine yet. So I was like way, way overdosed, uh, which I'm sure you, you wouldn't be happy about. You wouldn't recommend. Um, but at the time, it, it felt like a great idea and uh, definitely changed the feeling at the moment. I'm sure it did seem like a good idea at the time. And uh, apparently it worked out because you're here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm okay. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm all right over here, but uh, otherwise I, I survived it. The fact that it was your dominant arm, I'm sure that made rehab that much harder because you had to relearn, retrain everything with your non-dominant arm. How long were you in the hospital and how long were you in rehab? The hospital, I think I, I stuck around for about six months. Uh, a lot of that was, was in a haze. I, I have, even presently, I have severe phantom pain. It's something that I, that I imagine I will have to keep dealing with. Um, but I spent about six months in the hospital, uh, pretty much skipped rehab entirely. Uh, as far as occupational therapy, learning how to do things, I, I decided that I was going to figure it out on my own. And how do you think you do now in terms of efficiency of fine motor skills and all with your right arm versus what you originally did with your left arm? Uh, I, I mean, we're very resilient, uh, us human beings. And I think that when we aren't really given a choice, when we're, when we're back against the wall, we tend to find solutions very quickly. And because I didn't have a choice. It wasn't like I, I broke an arm and it was casted and I had to learn and I knew I would get it back. I knew that this was it. I learned extremely quickly. Um, granted, there are things that I still don't do very well. I can't cut steak. I have to ask the kitchen to cut it for me if I, uh, on the rare occasion that I have one of those. Uh, I can't play guitar anymore, which is probably good for everyone else out there who would have had to listen. I was horrible. 
Um, but uh, it's it's it breaks down into two camps. It's things that I learned how to do just as well as I used to do, and things that I just avoid. Um, and it's not even like a a conscious thing. It's subconscious. I just avoid the things that I don't uh, that I don't have the capacity to do, and and uh, have moved on with my life. I feel very comfortable. Yeah, and. Your job in the military, you were a sharpshooter, correct? Correct. Is that a sniper? Is that what exactly did that entail? Yeah, there is a, a distinction between the two. A sniper is usually uh, set up under cover somewhere, uh, not usually in middle of the the conflict where where like troops are moving forward. Uh, every unit that's advancing has sharpshooters at the very front of of the attack force and they are the individuals that are actually uh they actually have to take the enemy down most most firing in the field is just to get people's heads down to get the enemy's head down and then there are the sharpshooters that are actually meant to hit targets uh it's one of the the harder roles uh in in a conflict when you requalified and got back into the field was it in a different job or the same job uh, no, I, I continued to serve as a sharpshooter after the injury. Um, I imagine it'll be interesting to hear that my my targeting, my actual shooting, didn't suffer from the injury. Um, what was harder was was loading my rifle uh, and unjamming it. That that is really difficult, minus an arm, and I had to figure out a few uh, unique ways to get that done. But the shooting. I don't know. I, I guess I played enough video games. I, I mentioned I was a, a Miami Jewish nerd uh, playing Xbox growing up, and I think that hand-eye coordination really helped me out later on. I've shot a lot of rifles and all, and it seemed like a really two-hand job. One down the barrel and one at the trigger mechanism. How did you do that? How did you work it out? I mean, it really does depend on the weapon. Some, some are tougher than others. Um, at the time, Israel had introduced uh, a rifle called the Tavor, and they had a smaller version of it called the Micro Tavor, and most of the weight lies on the back of the rifle. So when you're holding it by the grip, uh, the weight's not leaning forward, uh, and that gave you a little extra wiggle room to, to hold on to it. It didn't require as much strength. Uh, I'm not going to pretend like it was easy, um, but I figured it out. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? I'm Just keep it simple. I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Brav Bros. Good job. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. And so how long were you back in the field afterwards? Uh, I served another two years after I was injured. I, I obviously had to 
prove myself combat worthy again. That was a whole process. Um, I was given a month to retake all the tests that a combat soldier usually has eight months to finish. So I had to learn how to shoot, load, and unjam my assault rifle. Uh, how to do obstacle courses in full combat gear that in, that include uh, climbing a rope, jumping over a seven foot wall, uh, crawling a long distance. Uh, I eventually figured out how to pull grenade pins um, by tying tape around the pin so that it served as like a, a cushion. And then I pulled it out with my teeth like Rambo. Um, so yeah, it was more a matter of just taking the time and giving myself the space to figure out how I was going to do all those things. Um, that was the easy part. And then the hard part was convincing the military to give me that opportunity because they were obviously reluctant to put someone uh, in my situation back in a combat environment. Why did they do that? What did you do to convince them? I'm interested in that because I know that you do a lot of motivational speaking and that sort of thing now. That first motivational speech had to be to convince them to let you do it again. I, I've never quite looked at it th that way, but that's very true. Uh, I, I had to motivate a lot of different uh, people who were reluctant at the start. Um, and if I'm being entirely honest, that, that strength came from my, my parents. Um, because it wasn't some afterthought that I wanted to go back. The very first thing I said when I woke up is that I intended to, to continue my role in combat. Uh, and granted, this is right after an injury. Uh, I was on a lot of medication, a lot of painkillers. But I remember looking up at my parents the first time that I woke up in my hospital bed and telling them that I planned to go back. And my father burst into tears. And he said, how could you even joke about something like that after what happened to you? And my mother, who's standing on the other side of the bed, she turns to him and says, if this is what his heart is telling him, we have to stand behind him. We have to let him give this a shot. And I'm, I'm lying there and I'm watching them argue back and forth about my going back to combat. And I wasn't focused on my father's fears. I wasn't even focused on the insane strength that my mother was showing by considering something like this. I was reading between the lines and what I saw there is that they both believe that I can do it. My father may not have wanted me to do it, but he believed that I could. And that gave me so much strength. That belief fueled every single interaction that I had with, uh, with the generals that would come to visit in the hospital, the politicians. And I just, I, I went through every rotation. I asked every single one of them uh, if they would help me go back. And eventually I got the answer I was looking for. Uh, I, I found one general uh, that when I was ready, gave me the opportunity to retest. So your parents taking it seriously, like not just that you wanted to do it, but they thought he could actually do this. So we need to take this seriously. Yeah. I mean, that'll give you strength for sure. Now, where does this come from? Because you're describing yourself as this nerd sitting down in Miami, not distinguishing yourself as an athlete or anything particular at the time. But then here we go. This takes place. And you do what you do, you wind up being the only soldier in the world, in the world, to do this. Why? Why you? So if you would have asked me why I was joining the first time around, um, it was ideologically driven. It was, it was wanting to protect the Jewish people. If you would ask me the second time around, 
it was because I needed there to be a reason for what happened. I, I didn't want to put my injury in the hands of fate or a higher power. I, I decided that if there was going to be a reason, it had to be of my own making. And the only thing that I can think of that would give it purpose was to do something special with it. I understood that if I went back, I would be able to inspire the soldiers around me. And, and more selfish than that, I, I, I understood that if I went back, it was almost as if I was undoing the damage. I told myself that if I continue serving in a combat role, which is what I was doing before the injury, after the injury, then it's as if it never happened. And in, in a large way, that is what I managed to do, because as soon as I was back in combat, there were full days where I just totally forgot that I had an injury. I was just me again. I was whole. And, and I, I like to think that for the most part, I've kind of carried that into civilian life. I still walk around Los Angeles and I don't really feel disabled. I don't carry myself that way. I don't think of myself that way. And because of that, most people don't see me that way either. Russia is the number one nuclear power in the world. Some sources say they have close to 6,000 nuclear warheads, 1,600 of them believed to be deployed. The United States has about 5,500, about 1,600 of which are deployed. Russia's stockpile is growing. The United States' stockpile is shrinking. Doesn't matter what the exact numbers are. What we know is they are a nuclear superpower. And they have hundreds and hundreds of these nuclear warheads deployed with the ability to launch them from the sea, the air, and the ground. There is no room for error here. If you look at this from a worldview, when you look at this from the psychological standpoint of Vladimir Putin, and he is allowed to invade a democratic republic and get away with it, then what happens next? Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Now, the question is, how self-destructive is he? Well, who knows? I don't think anybody knows that. And trust me, the United States government has a department that does nothing but study Vladimir Putin every time he's on camera. They look to see what's his gait. Does he look bloated that day? Are his eyes red? Is his syntax changed? Is he slurring any words? Is the cadence of what he's saying different? 
Are his eye movements different? Look at his pupils. Is there anything that suggests a shift in his mentality, in his mental health, in his stress levels, in his health levels, in the color of the sclera in his eyes? Anything that would suggest that he is ill, that he is mentally ill, anything. When you have someone that is an autocrat that has their finger on the button, you watch this person very closely to see if you're seeing the prodromal, the lead up to any kind of illness. He has watched very closely. I've given you my view of a small sampling of things. We have a department of this government, I promise you, that's not publicized, that studies this guy every second he's on tape to look for baselines and then variants from baselines. Is Putin really psychotic, evil, power-hungry, and a madman? Or is this just media hype to advance some political agenda to justify something that's going on? I'm going to tell you, obviously, I don't know Vladimir Putin. I've not evaluated him. And unlike some professionals that have no problem rendering a diagnosis on someone they've never evaluated, tested, interacted with, or whatever, I can't do that. Wish I could, but I can't. I don't have x-ray vision. But what I can do, which I think is extremely valuable, is this. I study body language. I've spent a lot of time doing that in working with juries. I've spent time vertically developing that skill. It is a science. There's a lot behind it. And it came in particularly useful in this situation because I don't even almost speak Russian. Not even almost. I have had the benefit of having some really good translations of some of the tapes that I've looked at early on leading up to this conflict with the buildup and also fairly recently. Now, some of the translations are things that aren't maybe as precise as others. But some of them have come from really good sources, really good Russian translators, so I have great confidence in those. And I've been assisted in this and been given access to some of these by my good friends and colleagues at Behavior Panel. And if this is one of the sites that you don't follow, I highly recommend that you subscribe and do now. They have a two-hour and I think 36-minute program up right now on YouTube analyzing Vladimir Putin and with great examples explaining why they think what they think. They're colleagues of mine. They're good friends of mine. We've talked about this. We've collaborated on it and spent time on it. And they do that with really critical interviews. So I highly recommend it. I have the greatest respect in the world for these professionals. I'm going to talk about them a little bit more in a minute because they've been a great resource for me on this, and we've exchanged ideas about it. So I can't diagnose him, and I, you know I'm not into labels anyway, but let me tell you what I see. What I see in his behavior, his syntax, his conduct, is this is an individual that at times, and I'm going to talk about which ones, but at times is seething anger. He's showing signs 
of what I refer to as savior behavior. This is important because he believes that he is a savior of the Russian people, not just the people in Russia. And he is a true believer. This is not something that he's just saying in the media to have something to say to justify what he's doing. 30 plus percent of ethnic Russians are in the Ukraine. And I believe that he has convinced himself to the core of his soul that he is going in there to remove the folks that are persecuting them. So think about this. He does not believe that he is just invading another country and going on a land grab, a resource grab, just trying to rebuild something. He believes he is a savior. And trust me, people with a savior complex are self-righteous, and that makes them dangerous. And there are 30-plus percent ethnic Russians in Ukraine, and he has convinced himself, I am going to save my people. And he shows many true believer attributes by branding the bad guys. Here's a problem. The bad guys, they're Ukrainian and the United States because we represent the same thing in terms of a democratic republic. Something that's dangerous here is there are ethnic Russians in all former USSR nations. So is he going to go save them next? Where does it stop? Now, what do I base this on? The way he communicates. Now, as I said, I've got good translations for what he's saying, so I'm having to read this in subtitles and listen to the translations, which are someone else speaking his words, so I can't give any weight to that or what it means. I just have to take the words themselves, not the emphasis of the syntax of the words, but the actual words he speaks. But there are certain emphatic illustrators, the way that he uses his hands, and there are certain things that you'll sometimes see people do where they categorize things, like the old Ben Franklin T, where you do pros and cons, pros and cons, this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad, and they'll speak where certain things are emphasized. There's only one asymmetric emotion out of all emotions expressed on the face. And there are a lot of ways to describe it, but it is disgust, it is disdain, it's dismissive, it's this superior sort of dismissal and superior disgust towards something. He uses that when he's talking about kind of the senior partner in the situation, and that's the United States. And you only see this when he's talking about the Ukraine and the United States out of everything else he's talking about. There are other times that he's talking where he kind of slumps down in his chair, puts his hands on the table, his voice drops, 
But when he's talking about the Ukraine, when he's talking about the United States, he gets very animated with his body language and in his voice. He is a true believer. And this adds up to the fact that this guy actually believes that he is the victim here. He is wronged. His country is wronged. Now, look, I just need to repeat this every once in a while. I'm not political. I don't know enough about politics to be political. I am certainly not competent to make geopolitical comments, and you need to take everything I say as being in my lane of psychological, not political, not geopolitical, but psychological in reading the motivations of the person in this role. I see resignation to do what is to be done. Now, do I know where this is going to stop? I don't know where it's going to stop. But let me tell you something else. I don't believe he does either. I know this. He is resigned to do what he decided to do when this started. So all of this stuff about deterrence, I can't comment on the diplomacy of all of this, and I'm not one that thinks we need to rush into war. Don't know enough about it to advise about that, but I can tell you that when you're dealing with an autocratic situation, you're dealing with an individual without checks and balances, and that's a dangerous situation because I don't care whether you're talking about a czar, a king, a queen. If you're talking about one person, that person is subject to psychological swings. They can wake up one day on the wrong side of the bed. They can have mood swings. They can become delusional. They can have meltdowns. They can have all kinds of issues and problems. And if it goes down to one person and there's no checks and balances, then you don't know what you're going to get. And penetrating the delusional system of someone that is delusional, and whether he is or not, is impossible for me to say, having never met him, but I can tell you that his body language suggests to me that he believes what he's saying. He believes that he is a savior of this 30-plus percent ethnic Russians in Ukraine. He believes he's going in there to save these people from those that would do them harm. And when that's true, that makes this a dangerous individual. I don't see a person that you can negotiate with to get to a resolution because he has outright stated and built his case that the other party, the U.S., NATO, Ukraine, cannot be trusted and break their word. I don't see this ending well, even if we leave this to Ukraine. Now, I mentioned earlier that I've spoken to my colleagues with the Behavior Panel, one of them, Greg Hartley. Absolutely brilliant guy, formerly with the Army, interrogation specialist, also taught resistance to interrogation, 
worked with the Defense Intelligence Agency, Navy SEALs, federal law enforcement, always says the organism does what made the organism successful. And he observes that Putin has quietly rolled up the Crimea and Georgia with very little impact successfully. Now, that was in his history when he decided to roll up on Ukraine. Now, it hasn't gone the way that he thought. It didn't go the way that it did with the other two, but that's in the background. Now, also, one of my other colleagues there with Behavior Panel is Scott Rouse. Again, deep involvement with law enforcement, military, Fortune 500 companies. And these two, by the way, uh, work with Chase Hughes, probably the premier behavior profiling expert in the world. 20 years with the military, just retired in 2019. Mark Bowden, body language, behavioral expert, works with the G7, developed the truth plane methodology. I mean, this is all these guys do. That's why I suggest that you subscribe and look at their detailed analysis of Putin. But Scott Rouse says, and this is a quote from him, what I'm seeing scares me from a professional point of view. He's going to do what he decided he was going to do when he pulled this plan down off the shelf. And they all agree that when he speaks of the Ukraine and the U.S., they see a very similar disgust. So I think what I'm saying here is, is this an evil deranged, delusional madman. I can't really speak to that, but I can tell you that looking at his body language, everything I just said, I say with great confidence. And what bothers me the most is that he believes he's the victim here. He believes that his country is the victim here. And if you look at his background as an individual, it fits right in. When you believe you're the victim and then you have a savior complex, uh, that does not bode well for sitting down and working out something because you, being the West, the U.S., the Democratic Republics, are seen as the ones that are evil. So that's my thumbnail about what I read behaviorally from him. I could give you 50 reasons, everything from his body language, use of hands, posture, facial expressions, eye movements, all the things to support that. But I don't think you're really interested in that at this point. If you are, they go into that in great detail with Behavior Panel, and I've talked with them about that in great detail. So if you're interested in that, I'll let you gather that detail from them. You know, Ukraine is a pretty big country. You know, it's big enough that there are parts of the Ukraine 
that haven't felt the sting of what's happened yet. Just like here with with COVID, there were parts of this country that were really stung by COVID and parts that hadn't yet. And so there were people living normal lives and other parts that were just in paralysis. But Ukraine is a country about the size of Texas with 40 million people. So there are parts of it that don't have destroyed buildings. So there's still some order going on there. And you can imagine how hard it is for people here in Idaho and Nebraska and California to say, well, why is this affecting us so much? And why should we care so much? Because a democratic country is being invaded by an autocratic bully that is a nuclear superpower, and it can rip up the entire world order and take us to a situation much like Hitler. And psychologically, that is a big deal. That is a big deal. A really, really big deal. Bakari Sellers made history in 2006 at just 22 years old. He defeated a 26-year incumbent state representative to become the youngest member of the South Carolina State Legislature and the youngest African-American elected official in the nation. It really bothers me when I see even something like tragically happened in Uvalde where we had 19 students killed, two teachers, and then recently one of the teachers' husbands died of a heart attack, maybe related, I can imagine, with the stress. I'm watching that. I don't even know which channel it was, but I start hearing people from both sides of the aisle using it to politicize issues of gun control and whether the governor of the state is doing enough of this or enough of that. There's time for that. But in the meantime, we've got people down there that are really hurting and need resources and help. And it just really is offensive to my sensibilities to see people getting up on their hind legs and running an agenda on top of that. I hate to see that. I would push back on the framing of that because I would, I would, my pushback would be that when is the time to have these conversations? And people always say, well, you know, the bodies are still, they're still warm. And as someone who lived through a mass shooting, um, you know, one of my good friends I write about at Clemente Pinckney was the pastor at Mother Emanuel Lamy Church and, um, you know, him along with eight others. I mean, they, they like, like in Buffalo, I, I would just say that, you know, Dylan Roof took the best of us. He didn't, he walked into a church doing Bible study and shot nine people. Um, Tragic. When do you, when do you have these conversations? And what I resent more than the, uh, you know, politicization or whatever you may call it is the do nothingness. Um, because we've had, you know, you, you had people forget we had the largest mass shooting in the history of the world um, in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, right. in the, the concert, we've had Parkland, we've had Sandy Hook, we've had, we've had Fort Hood, we've had Charleston. I mean, the list of mass shootings, school shootings goes on and on and on. And so I, I understand 
the space needed to grieve. I mean, we're still grieving in, in Charleston and it happened in 2015. But what frustrates me more is the, the do nothingness of our quote unquote leaders on both sides of the aisle. Well, I agree that nothing has been done. And this is a matter of coming up with a model of prevention, not intervention. But I'll push back on your pushback <laughs> and say people deserve their space in that moment. Let's at least give them center stage and space because, as you point out, what's been done? Does three to five days make a difference? I think based on results, it hasn't. So we can at least be respectful of those that are hurting instead of interrupting press conferences and beating on the drum. How about instead we actually get some meaningful legislation? We actually get a plan of prevention that should 100% be bipartisan. This doesn't have anything to do with the Second Amendment. Everybody frames it that way, but it doesn't have anything to do with Second Amendment. You will not get an argument from me out of that. I'm a concealed weapons permit holder. I'm a, I'm a Democrat from South Carolina, which uh, doesn't make me the most liberal Democrat in the world. I got, my, I got my CWP. I was in a class with Nikki Haley, of, of all people, one of my good friends who were actually from the same small county in Bamberg, South Carolina. And so I, I, I get all of that. I, I understand it, and it should be. But you have to have something to get 60 votes. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be extremely blunt with you, Dr. Phil. And I think that's why people some I mean, whether or not people like me or not, I think they always respect my truth. But when um, 20 white kids were killed in Sandy Hook and we did absolutely nothing. Our country became so desensitized to that. It became so normalized when we did nothing after Sandy Hook. I was completely um, jaded by the thoughts that anything would happen in the future. And so I was speaking to a colleague today at CNN and I said, um, it's very difficult to be a, a new parent. My 16 my year old is my, my stepchild and my three year old, of course, are mine. But it's very difficult to go through this this uh, phase of sending your kid to school because, you know, it's going to happen again. Your prayer has to be that it doesn't happen to your children. And that is an anxiety-inducing moment. Well, it is. There were 61 active shooters on campus in 2021. That's more than one a week. I mean, and you think about this kid in, um, in Texas. He went and got an AR-15 on two different occasions and 350. 50 bullets and nobody stopped to think that maybe there needed to be some pause or maybe there needed to be some further. I just don't get it. I think that there's some common sense, basic things we can do and we're just not there. You said when Sandy Hook happened and there were all of those white children that got killed and nothing happened. Why do you point out that they're white children? I think that for a country that has uh, a true question mark on the value of certain lives and the, the benefit of humanity. I think um, by bringing in that component and being extremely clear in the description thereof, 
um, in saying that there's no question these lives matter. There's no question of the value of the sanctity of these lives. This is not in question at all. Um, and we did nothing. I think that exacerbates and drives home a point. It also, Dr. Phil, in a probably decently um, cynical way, is decently sensationalized. I recognize that. It draws people to the sentiment. But it also points out a true fact that we did nothing after Sandy Hook. And I, I stand on the resolve that if we did nothing after Sandy Hook, we won't do anything now. Yeah. So your point is, if you didn't do anything after those white kids were shot, they're sure not going to do anything if minority children are killed. Not after 70% Hispanic community was shot up, no. So you don't have much hope that that's going to send a, a message up the chain that says, okay, enough's enough, too much is too much, now's the time. I hope I'm wrong. But, I mean, do you have faith something? I mean, it's your show. I don't mean to be posing questions to No, you. ask me anything you want. But do you have faith that anything's going to change? And if so, what gives you, what is that faith rooted in? My hope is that at some point, there's got to be a tipping point where America says enough's enough and too much is too much. And if anything is going to cause the left and right to come together, then somebody that goes in and guns down innocent children. I mean, these children were nine, 10 years old. That to me is about the most cowardly, egregious thing you can do. And it just seems really hard to imagine that anybody from the far left to the far right could disagree that that is an absolute stain on our nation, that that is a horrible thing to keep happening. Like I said, it's 61 times in 2021. At some point, if there's a bipartisan issue, protecting our young people and our elderly seems to be something that everybody should find non-threatening and come together on. It just seems like if you're going to pick something, that would be a place that people could rally around. I hear you and I don't disagree. I just don't. And I think there'll be the recognition there a, a solution or a policy solution or an implementation of something to change or alter the path of where we're, where we're at, not where we're headed. I, I just don't see that happening. I mean, I don't see universal background checks have over a 75, 80% approval from both left and right, all races, all age groups. And we still haven't passed it. I mean, they, they, just that simple policy proposal. Um, we can't get that done. And this the do nothingness um, again. And I, I, I say that as the kids say, you know, we got to, you know, who, who wants to smoke? You know, both sides of the aisle deserve that. Well, why is that? Why is there the do nothingness from the inside out? What do you see? Uh, I see it being a lack of courage. I see the role of special interest. I mean, the same week you have a mass shooting, you have um, individuals from the great state of Texas going to an NRA convention to speak. Um, and you know, the NRA, I would, it, it's not what it once was, but I would argue the NRA is probably the second or third most powerful lobby behind the ARP. Um, um, it's a lack of a vision. Um, and it, it's, it's, 
it's, I don't think that our elected officials are truly listening to the pain that you and I, and we don't, you know, they're not enough conversations like the one that you and I are having. I, I would ask um, outside of hunting hogs or hunting and killing hogs, why do you need an AR-15? Um, you know, why, why, why does anyone need an AR-15? And, you know, those are just legitimate questions that, you know, me and John Kasich, the Republican governor of, of former Republican governor of Ohio, we agree on that sentiment. And we've, we've had people agree on that sentiment. It's just something right now that we're so polarized and people want to yell. The two things we hear all the time when these things happen, um, the people want to yell about mental health. And there's been no indication that this uh, young man had any mental illness. Um, and then people want to say, what about Chicago? And, and both of those things, I, as you stated earlier, I truly resent. If there's a path to overcome the do-nothingness, what is it? Electing better people. When are you running for Senate, Dr. Phil? I'll, I'll come support you. I think about what you just said about electing better people. I wonder sometimes if the better people have the attitude that you get into the system and you just get bogged down and they think they can have more impact from the outside in than the inside out. I mean, I think that that's a reasonable. And then you, you look around and why would you want to work with some of these people that are there to be honest with you? <laughs> when yeah. I first got elected, uh, I was 21, 22 years old. And I remember going in the state house and I would look at folk and I'd be like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here. And then after about a month, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're here. I can't believe you're here. <laughs> yeah. How did you get here? It's it's it becomes uh quick it's cold water on you quite quickly. Yeah, I suspect you get disillusioned pretty fast. You know, the funny thing though, Dr. Phil, and the perspective that I come from on all of these things, whether or not it's the issue of race that we talked about, whether or not it's guns or you know, being forward thinking or whatever, I, I don't think uh personally there's anything irredeemable about this country. I just think you have to reimagine what she looks like. Dr. James Kimmel, Jr., a researcher at Yale University. Today, we're addressing the adverse physical effects that anger and revenge have on the brain and that the brain, therefore, has on behavior of some people. Research says that this anger, this retaliatory behavior, is just as addictive as opioids, making them extremely difficult to resist for some people that get into this loop. People need to acknowledge that this is an intersection between law enforcement and public health. I'm not asking cops to not arrest these perpetrators, because while this is a long-term solution and it is a prevention program, these people are a problem right now today. I did a episode recently with some folks that were talking about the fact that the real problem here starts in the neighborhoods. It starts with the upbringing. It starts with the lack of role models. It starts with all of the social influences and upbringing with these young men that were left with no alternatives, and so they made bad choices, and so they wound up in prison. And 
putting them in a cage for five years does nothing to help them. So that's why they support defunding the police. They just wouldn't understand that I agree with them completely that that's how they got from where they were to where they are. But if I have a home invasion and somebody is holding my wife at the business end of a shotgun, I don't give a shit what his childhood was like. I don't want a social worker to come explain to me how downtrodden he was. I want a cop to come in there and suppress the crime at the time. So I'm not excusing these criminals for their criminal conduct. And it's interesting when you talk to, for example, the business owners in the black community, they don't want less police. Right. They want more police, better trained. Yes. To do the right thing. And I was saying, you don't want this cop to try to be a therapist, an analyst. You want somebody to come in and suppress the crime. Add someone to the team if you want somebody to come in and evaluate these issues. But while he's trying to assess all of this, a baby can be shaken. Somebody can be shot in the head. You need somebody to come in and control the situation and then decide what needs to happen to re-educate and open new corridors of opportunities. But if we don't get funding to create inclusion of this model into the educational system and into the rehabilitation protocols, it'll never happen. If you don't put money behind it, it's not ever going to happen. I, I agree 100%. You've got prevention, treatment, and then you need incapacitation. You need to freeze the situation where safety is restored, and then these other two areas can move, move into place. And I also can't agree with you more about the need for funding. This is so critical. And the uh, CDC, you know, the, the Centers for Disease Control, have just been freed up by Congress recently to even begin to start really looking at violence again because they were sort of frozen out of it for a while because the perception was, and that's, this has been the perception, uh, is that the only way to solve um, violence uh, is through gun control, right? And my thought is setting aside whether we can agree or disagree on um, too many too many, too many guns near people that are having a, 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 or who are revenge addicts is always going to lead to a lot of deaths. But my thought is, we now have a way to stop people from being re- revenge addicted, and that's called motive control. Motive control instead of gun control offers an opportunity where we can get out of this deadlocked discussion about weapons and start, about, start talking about something new and science-based, which says, even if this, if this, if this table right here was filled to the brim with handguns, I don't think you and I would go at each other, right? I don't think we would because our motive is controlled. No grievances, no desire to retaliate. And even if we did, we're not going to pick up a gun, but there are too many other people that would. So we can work on the motives while we're also trying to sort out, you know, weapons laws. Uh, And by doing that, we're actually going to start saving lives. And I, this is where I have trouble 
uh, getting the message through with people that are really gun control addicts. And, and I personally, I think that there should be fewer guns in society. That's my personal view. And I grew up on a farm where I had access to a gun. And I think that's why I think it. It was that handgun was so close and available to me. And I went after these guys that shot and killed my dog. And I may not be sitting here today, but for that gun, because I right. didn't have my motive control. <laughs> my motive for killing was full on at that moment. Uh, so working on a motive control approach, it turns on the entire medical system. It, it turns on the science system. It turns on mental health and addiction medicine. It turns on all of these vast institutions that we have sitting on the sideline, not knowing what to do about violence. There was a podcast, the New York Times podcast, a month or two ago, had a, this is an incredible story. It was a, a, a psychiatrist in somewhere in California, and she was um, seeing a teenage male who was brought in uh, by the police on fear that he represented a threat. He was going to kill somebody. She evaluated him and she concluded that he had no diagnosable mental illness, but she was also convinced he might go and kill somebody. But she had no diagnosis to give because medical science has none for that kind of person. And so she said, what do I do? If I give him a mental health diagnosis, this is going to contribute to the you know, ruining of his life. He's going to get treatments he probably doesn't need. He's going to walk around with a diagnosis that's going to impact the rest of his days. On the other hand, if I let him walk out of here, he might kill somebody. What do I do? I have, and, and this, was, this is a, a top-ranked psychiatrist, research psychiatrist at one of the big California universities. And she said, I have no way to treat that boy. And we do now. We do have a way. And that information needs to get out to the medical profession. So if you're going to have a red flag law and you're going to identify somebody that's at a, you know, is a threat, you've got to have something to do with them when you bring them in, other than just throw them in a jail. And this is the way. Uh, but without that research, as you mentioned, without the funding for that work and without funding the education of physicians to be able to use it, we're going to be stuck watching bodies continue to pile up. It's getting worse all the time. And I've been interviewed about this over and over and over after Uvalde and all. People want to ask me about the Second Amendment. I said, do you want to make us safer? Or do you want to talk about the Second Amendment? Because there are like 20,000 AR-15s on the street now. So you can change the Second Amendment, and that may be great for my grandkids' grandkids, but there's probably a 200-year supply of guns on the street right now. I want to focus on what we can do now, Yes, what we can do now. And what you're talking about are things we can do that can reduce people's desire to go exact revenge, to go exact retaliation now. Would it be easier to stop this if they didn't have access to guns? Of course it would. But there are more guns in America than there are Americans because people right. have more than one gun. So there are probably 375 million guns out there. Those aren't going to go away if you change the Second Amendment. They're going to be there. What we got to do is say, what are we going to do about 
people's motive to use those guns today. This is just something that needs to be center stage. It can be part of the school curriculum. It can be part of dealing with those people if they do get identified. And it really is hijacking the brain. But we can take it back. We can teach them to express this in other ways. And your app that talks about trying these real or imagined transgressors in their mind is truly cathartic. And oftentimes you only have to get like these mass shooters or school shooters, you only have to get them by that moment. It may never come back again. It may never come back again. If you can get them past that moment, because we don't have the ability to predict who's going to do it, but we do have a pathway of knowing how they got to that moment, and it includes a mental-emotional crisis recently. It includes, we know most of them happen in September and January, February, when they've come back to school. Mm -hmm. It's usually when they've been rejected or broken up with a girlfriend or whatever. Always a grievance that starts it. Real or imagined. Mm -hmm. Real or imagined. They've been aggrieved. So it's that perfect storm that comes together. And we know that a high majority of them get their guns at home. If we had a huge campaign to lock up the guns, I mean, really, I think back to the Just Say No campaign for drugs, not on how successful it was or not, but just how prolific that campaign was. If we had that prolific a campaign of lock up the guns, it's hard to shoot somebody with a gun you don't have. Right. That's right. If we could identify them and had a reporting system, and then there were people on the other end of that reporting system that were trained with this information could have a profound effect right now. That's correct. And and look at what we do with driving, young drivers. Before you can get behind the wheel of a lethal weapon, which is an automobile in the right hands, we give young drivers a lot of training. And I'm not, you know, everybody talks about gun training in terms of, you know, making sure that you don't keep a bullet in the chamber and making sure that you understand where the safety is and that your finger's off the trigger, all these things, all of that's very important. But what we don't train people to do uh, uh, before they acquire a gun is teach them about these, this powerful revenge process and that the weapon, a gun is the, it's the ultimate um, substance of abuse. Psychologist Dr. Jillian Peterson and sociologist Dr. James Densley of the Violence Project have developed an integrated, interdisciplinary understanding of violence and a holistic approach to addressing it. I've spent time recently with Dr. Redfield, who was the head of the CDC at the peak of the pandemic and transition between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. And Dr. Dimitri Christakis, who is a pediatric epidemiologist who has been really studying the effects of the quarantine, the shutdown of the schools on young people. Both of them are talking about the profound effects that the quarantine and the shutting down of the schools is having on our school population now. And that the cost 
is practically immeasurable, but that it's going to cost, the model suggests, 5.3 million years of life lost for these kids in school now because their academic attainment is going to be less, which means their employment success is going to cost them an estimated $17 trillion for this generation across time. And so it's a big predictor of longevity. Depression is higher than it's ever been measured since we've been measuring it. Anxiety is higher. Suicidal ideation attempts and suicide is higher, particularly for young women, but also for men. So mental health adjustment is really bad right now with depression and anxiety leading the problems and tremendous academic frustration because there are these gaps now. So they're facing all of this expectation for work they can't do because anywhere from five to 12 months of loss is going to push them further and further behind. Is this kind of problem and frustration likely to create bigger problems going forward in terms of playing out in the schools with violence of this type or other types? Yeah, I think we are at high risk right now. And, you know, we've seen it play out over the last year with Oxford and with Uvalde and even the Buffalo shooting and the Highland Park shooting. Both of those were 18 year olds who had just been through the pandemic being a you know high school student during the pandemic. We're seeing, I think, risk factors, things like you've been mentioning suicidality and hopelessness and depression spending increasing times online, those are all elevated because of the pandemic. And then you add into that record gun sales and just access within the home that I do think we have to take this very seriously. We can't only talk about this after a school shooting occurs. We have to keep talking about it in building these prevention systems. I think so long we've been focused on reacting. It's about minimizing casualties and training ourselves to minimize casualties. We need to prevent this from actually occurring. And that's going to take some real training and resources and commitment from all of us in schools, as parents, as community members. But it's really time to start working on it. Well, I am really concerned because I know during that time, Department of Child and Family Service referrals were down as much as 40 to 60 percent because all of these mandated reporters, teachers, coaches, administrators, cafeteria workers didn't have their eyes on these children. So they're just left to their own devices. We know that abuse didn't go down, but their referrals did. So it was happening and these kids were suffering that. Certainly in these primary grades, you talk about these early childhood problems. So we now know that this was happening over these 18 months of shutdown. And for a lot of these kids, this is where they got their food. This is where they got their protection. This is where they had a sense of protection in community. And that was just taken away. You add to that their frustration with academics. And we've seen 1.3 million kids drop out of the public school system Hell, in New York, enrollments dropped 9% just in New York City. 
So we've got a lot of kids really suffering right now. And then when I think about all y'all's research and everything it tells us that puts these kids on that path, it just makes it more urgent that we do what you've taught us we need to do. The urgency is real because I think also our institutions feel so fragile right, right now. So the grievances that young people have, and they're on the internet searching for answers to their problems, um, you know, we're at a time where we don't trust our institutions. We don't trust our schools. We don't trust scientists and journalists and politicians and police officers and those that we usually would turn to for guidance and for the supports that we need to get through such a troubling time. And so as we become increasingly sort of polarized and as we become frustrated with the state of the world, that's also going to be underlining all of the other mental health challenges that we were just outlining. And so you have a kind of psychological component to this, and then you have this sociological component to it as well. And I think that for us is why we do need to really build those systems to prop up those institutions to make sure that they are there and they're functioning, particularly for our young people, because they really need them right now. I think so, too. We've got to do something to close this gap or it's going to get worse. That's something that's being worked on right now. But I don't think this one's over. I think we're going to see another one coming and it's just going to put more and more pressure on our school kids. I think the work that you guys have done has just been prophetic and could not be more timely. Look at what we're facing now. Highest levels since records have been kept. We are at high risk. So we've got to dig in and figure this out. This is very high on my priority list. I visited Capitol Hill recently and talked to members on both sides of the aisle in the House and the Senate. They know that it's high on my priority list and they're listening. And I'm hoping soon we might jointly go talk to some of these people and see if we can get something done. Is there a state, is there a school system, a region that you think does a better job that is kind of a leader in getting some of this together? I know Colorado has some reporting systems and all. Is there somebody that you think approximates leading in the direction that needs to be done? Yeah, Colorado has some really good systems in place. Um, the organization Sandy Hook Promise has an anonymous reporting apps that about 2 million students use. And when they put in a concern, it goes to an actual crisis center that, and it's responded to within a minute by a crisis counselor who tries to sort of figure out what that student needs at the moment. And I think that's the type of model we really need at the national level. And the hopeful thing is, I think, when we've studied averted shootings or kids who are on this pathway and changed their mind, sometimes the problem can feel so massive at the policy level, but it really comes down to a human connection, right? It's someone connecting with them, like you were describing, someone putting their hand around their shoulder, somebody giving them a little bit of hope to get them through that moment and to get them the resources that they need. So in some ways, that is incredibly hopeful because that is something that we can all be doing for each other every day. Well, it's good that there are some examples out there. And we now have the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. 
It's not flawless at this point because people are being trained, but it is up and it is running. It's the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. It's got over 200 crisis centers that are open 24 hours a day. People sometimes can't remember the crisis prevention lifeline number, but they can remember 988. So that's out there, and it's getting more and more support and more and more activity all the time. I've been working with them on that and messaging on that. So we do have attention. People are paying attention to this on Capitol Hill. I hope you guys will continue to dialogue with me about this, and hopefully we can go up there and talk to these folks and see if we can get them to lean into it. Absolutely. Yes.